Welcome to This Must Be The Place, I am Eric Parkinson. This is a show that strives to reveal the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. Whether these places are cities, fictional locations, street corners, public squares, or barely noticed nooks and crannies, we strive to bring you weekly stories, features, and interviews such as the one today to let you feel the texture of these places. Rodrigo de Medeiros is joining me again this week. This is a double feature of sorts. In our last podcast, Rodrigo and I had a good conversation focusing on why he and his family decided to take a year off and embark on a round-the-world trip. Check that out if you haven't yet. We decided we should keep the momentum going, but shift direction a bit and focus on a couple of countries that have made an indelible impact on Rodrigo, Brazil and Argentina. So let's quickly reintroduce Rodrigo for those of you who haven't um, met him or joined us last time. Rodrigo is a Seattle-based filmmaker, photographer, director, and producer, creating some fantastic and powerful editorial fashion, documentary, and travel content. You can take a look at that work at rodrigod.com. That's rodrigod.com. Rodrigo, thank you again for agreeing to keep on trucking and, and, and talking and, and joining for another week. Absolutely my pleasure. Great. Last time we talked in a, in a really broad way about your round-the-world travel experience, and really not that broad in a personal way as well. Today I want us to dig a little deeper and explore those places in your life that have had a significant impacts on you and who you are. A little bit about me to, to give you context of how I think this conversation hopefully will go. I was raised in Mexico City. I was born in New York City, but my mother and father moved to Mexico City when I was two. My dad died when I was six, and my mother just decided to be a single mom with a single kid and just stay in Mexico City and raise me you know, up to 18 and 19 before I went off to college. So here I am in the United States, and I've been here for a couple of decades already, more, but Mexico City is in my blood. And as I walk around, maybe on a lazy Saturday morning or Sunday morning, and I suddenly smell new construction or wet cement, there's something just immediate that takes me back to growing up in Mexico City. Now, why wet cement? I don't know how to explain it. It's just a, a sort of memory I have about living in that place. Everybody probably has similar experiences that there are these triggers that immediately take you back to the places of your childhood or the places where that were formative for you. So I want to talk a little bit about Brazil in that way because As, as people who have followed us know, you are from Brazil originally, and here you are in the United States after a long period of time. So I don't only want to talk about Brazil relative to your round-the-world trip that you recently had, but about the Brazil of your childhood, the Brazil of your adulthood, and how it's different, and, and really delve deeply into Brazil. And then after that, we're going to talk about Argentina in particular, because it's one of the countries you mentioned last time that really had an impact when you did your round-the-world travel. So I want to talk about those two countries and, and see what comes up. Excellent. Are, are you prepared for this? I'm ready. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the Brazil of your past, of your childhood. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? What were some of those immediate memories of the places that were part of your life? All right, so I was born in a smaller coastal town at the time. The name of the city is Natal, and it's at the uh, farthest northeast corner of Brazil. It's surrounded by incredible nature and beautiful beaches. So I grew up very much going to the beach. I lived there until I was about seven or eight, and then my father got a fantastic job in Brasilia, the capital of Brazil, and we moved there. 
And that's where I stayed until I moved here to the United States. So most of my life I spent in Brasilia, a very different and peculiar and unique city with its own fabric of qualities and and issues, very different from the Northeast mentality of Brazil. Brazil is such a big country, the biggest country in South America. And it's so big, I feel like the regions are almost their own sort of separate entity. There are some substantial differences between the places. So having been born in the Northeast and having some of that basic cultural fabric, I guess, from that region, which is a little bit more conservative, and moving to Brasilia, that I consider probably one of the biggest melting pots in Brazil because it's in the center of the country uh, where you have contact with people from all over the world and from all the regions. So it developed its own identity. And that's the part that I feel is the one I actually belong to in Brazil still to this day. My childhood was pretty <laughs> pretty standard. I don't, I don't have anything outstanding to say. Like life was pretty straightforward and very simple. And because we had the beach there, whenever I think back on those little memories I have (laughs) from being that young, I always associate it with the smell of the ocean and the feel of the sand in my feet, in my head. And in Brazil, of course, the calendar year is adopted in a way that um, our summer is, let's say, between uh, late November and early March, I believe. That's sort of the spectrum. And it goes for the festivities of Christmas, New Year, all the way to Carnival. Carnival marks somewhat the end of the summer in Brazil. And so at the time, in the 70s, the um, <laughs> the country pretty much be unfunctional. <laughs> People would take six weeks of vacation and go to their beach houses and just stay there. They would move houses, essentially, go from the city to next to the ocean. I've had a lot of that experience because not only my my parents, but my grandparents had home in one of the main beaches in Natal, Ponta Negra, which is still a big tourist point to go visit. And all of my memories, my strongest memories, come from being at that house, at that beach every summer. You talk about texture and you talk about smells. And I do have some of them that evoke some of these memories, visual memories. Um, my grandmother, for instance, had this beautiful, huge, ancient cashew tree. And for those of, of you who are not familiar with the actual cashew fruit, the cashew is just part of it. There's a fruit that is pure pulp that grows out of the actual cashew nut. And it is really flavorful and very unique because it's just pulp, there's no seeds. Uh, It's very fleshy and very juicy and has a very peculiar smell. So I still remember the smell of the leaves and of the cashew. Sometimes we would climb up on this tree and we would, uh, me and my cousins, we would hide up around the, you know, the branches and stuff. And sometimes there were cashew fruit and I would, we would just kind of take it out of the, snap out of the tree essentially and just eat it right there. So I, I, I remember some of these things. So the smell of those leaves, the noise of the ocean, you know, when you're sleeping, almost rocked you to sleep. I mean, I have these really strong sensorial memories of growing up. Brasilia was a complete different story. I would think that whenever people think about a big city, you probably wouldn't associate it with Brasilia because Brasilia is a planned city. It was um, finished, built in 1965 when the capital of Brazil moved from Rio to Brasilia. And it was completely planned and designed. So if you look at it from an aerial perspective, like from Google Earth or something, it, it has the shape of an airplane, mm. you know, with a center and like the wings sticking out of it. It's really quite peculiar. And all the buildings 
in the uh, traffic navigation and stuff in the city. It was planned originally not to even have stoplights. Believe me, it was very well planned. But unfortunately, one thing they failed <laughs> was to um, make an, uh, you know, have the expectation of how many people are going to live in, in, in the city by the year 2000. You know, it, it was four times more than what they expected. But anyway, um, growing up there was very much concrete cars and there are there's a different set of sounds and textures that evoke memories for me in brazilia than the ones from natal they're very distinctive there was no beach the noises i have are from children playing in the playground you would hear because it would reverberate in the buildings and you would you know the center square and you would kind of like hear hear that i don't know there's there's a couple of uh, specific trees that you know i, I think i have the smell of nature of that but it was a lot more of a smell of concrete you can smell that stone almost it's kind of weird mm -hmm. how it's different yeah and a lot of people um know that brasilia is a plant city a lot of brazilian modernism architecture is is there precisely when you think of of that concrete and those experiences children playing in the middle of that did it seem like a warm experience you know, thinking about modernist architecture and children playing and having that backdrop, are you even aware of, of this plant city and this modernism around you, or it's just the fabric of where you are and it's part you, of who you are? I think it becomes, you get familiarized, of course, it's actually almost, I think, a survival instinct. You kind of get used to it or bust. But I remember the shock of going from a place like Natal that where it was a lot slower in terms of pace and... Everybody knew everybody, kind of, you know, the families knew each other. And going to this place that almost felt cold and that had no, the word is not character, it has its own character, but it was so devoid of nature. You know what I'm trying to say? It was a planned mm -hmm. city. So you know that every single tree or even the artificial lake they built there, everything was diverted and constructed. It almost feels like a movie set sometimes. I heard rumors years back that that movie Young Flux with Charlize Theron was, they had considered filming it in Brasilia. Mm -hmm. They're not filming in Berlin, but then when I look at the architecture in the movie, I'm like, oh my gosh, that could totally have been filmed in Brasilia. But that's the sense. I feel that as a child, you probably, if you grew up there, you probably wouldn't, that would be your reality, I guess. And it probably wouldn't be so shocking. But I remember crying very much when I, I learned that we were moving to Brasilia. I didn't want to leave that life at all. It's interesting. When I walk around Seattle, um, for those who live in Seattle know this phenomenon quite well, there's a lot of construction in a certain neighborhood called South Lake Union. The majority of that construction is driven by Amazon, of Amazon.com fame. So within the past two years, glass, concrete, steel buildings have cropped up all over. And as part of being a good urbanist partner, um, it's not only office buildings that are constructed, but they dedicate a little public space, plazas that are also built in concrete. They open bars and restaurants, but these are encrusted within the corporate glass and concrete. So even though there is talking about giving a sense of place and space so urban life can coexist with corporate life, it doesn't feel right. There's not a, a, a certain organic emergence of businesses and shops, etc. There's here's the corporate building, and on this corner, we will have a Sam's Tavern restaurant or a Starbucks, and we will put some concrete benches on the corner so that people can sit and after they go to work can enjoy their macchiato sitting in this corporate park. And since I live in this neighborhood, after everybody leaves and is done with work, it becomes a wasteland. So it's very interesting when you were talking about Brazilia and, and that feel of 
you know, concrete and modernism. I keep thinking about South Lake Union and, and the perhaps kind-hearted attempts to build a sense of place and community, but it, it fails. It's not organic. And I sound like an old man, you know, waving his fist saying, get off my lawn. Why don't you do something a little more integrated? But I don't know what the answer is, but it made me think that this is still happening now and, and perhaps even it's becoming worse in some cases. Natal was a city that just kind of happened, you know. It was founded in the, it's 450 years old, so it wasn't the Portuguese first kind of came to Brazil. In Brazil, it was a city there that is probably 65 years old. I'm trying to, I, I can't do the math right now, but it was from 1965. So it, it's just really strange to see this difference. And you know that the kind of organic feel you're talking about, those spaces just kind of happened in Natal. But I think globalization, honestly, has sort of, made more of that kind of corporate stifled stuff sort of be more possible all over the world, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I feel like even Natal, there are areas that have been more with like concrete buildings and these stupid plazas they put there, they were just like, who the hell is gonna sit there to eat their lunch? You know, it's just weird. I remember, now that you bring this up, when I was young and I tell this story sometimes, uh, when I was living in Mexico City and we had to travel, we would go to the Mexico City airport. And the Mexico City airport, this was in the 70s, was also modernist build, but it was very interesting, interesting architectural details, interesting locales within the airport, interesting furniture choices, uh, rugs, etc. And I would get into the plane, and then we would travel to another airport, maybe it was New York, LaGuardia, maybe it was JFK, maybe it was um, in Germany. And I would emerge from the plane and look at the airport, and it would be a completely different feel. It would be a different architectural style, different places, different choices when it comes to the rugs and the, the furniture and so on. So traveling from airport to airport, that was the first contact I had with something interesting, something foreign, something new. Now, when I travel from one airport to another, there's a certain standardization in the experience of the airport itself yes. where I could come into the Seattle airport and see a certain shops and certain organizations, certain furniture, go into the plane, travel maybe to Frankfurt or what have you, enter the airport and basically feel like I'm in the same architectural space and choices that are made. And the sense of shifting or changing, it doesn't really occur. So it's interesting, globalization and standardization really has an impact on, on the psychological state of travel, because if you want to shift your perspective, it becomes more and more difficult to find that. Very shift. true, very true. But let's, let's think about Brazil now. I mean, you are from Brazil, you recently had a round around the world trip where you stopped at Brazil, but your family is also in Brazil. So you have gone back over the years many times. How does the Brazil, your experience of Brazil now, of your mother country, compare to your memories? What's the disconnect? What are some of the, the shifts that really strike you, for the better or the worse, actually? Oh, wow, yeah. It's radically different, I think, actually. Um, I feel like the underlying attitude and feel of the population probably is still the same. I think some of those things are really ingrained in our fabric, like as people. But globalization, I think, brought this standardization of things. I think the experiences people have are a little bit more artificial. They are festivals or they are um, structured things of having fun. I mean, even going to the beach in Rio, there's a whole infrastructure to enable that for tourists and stuff. So. It's extremely different now, I and mean, it has changed over the years, back and forth. I'm not even talking about politically, let's not even go there. <laughs> mm -hmm. But just about what a population looks like and does and all that jazz. I, I feel like there is still a little notion of less affair, you know, just kind of like, let's enjoy life. 
the job doesn't define me. I mean, there's still uh, there are still people who live have jobs, you know, but they essentially want to live lives. But I, I noticed, for instance, that in Brasilia, when we went back, uh, we have friends who have married and have children and have similar tasks and routines and all that jazz that they, it's very similar to what we have here, except for I feel like in the U.S., we have a little bit more of an infrastructure. The roads are better. You know, there's some things that we take for granted that are a little bit more organized here. But it's slowly moving more towards that. So my wife and I, when we were back in 2011, we were like, hmm, I wonder if it's time for us to come back and live here because that city has a huge significance for us, right? But we did feel that even then it had grown so much and it was its own crazy expanding organism that was very different from the one that we initially when we met in 1992. There are lots of uh, satellite, we call satellite cities that have grown around Brasilia. They are, are now so close, they're actually neighborhoods, essentially, you know. So uh, the character of that city has completely shifted. The same thing with Natal. Natal is the city I feel that might have kept its core characteristics more because Brasilia is so global and there are all the embassies and all the diplomats live there and stuff. So there's a lot of influx of people from all over the world. So that hasn't quite changed. It hasn't changed the way the youth, I suppose, has fun and does things. You know, I think I, I could be wrong, but my perception was that it hasn't changed so radically in that regard. Whereas Natal, I feel, it kind of retains some of those characteristics. It, it may have changed structurally, meaning it's more of a tourist spot now and stuff, but... I feel like the people still are still have some of that traditional ways of life. Something that strikes me, and I sense it in myself sometimes, when we compare what it used to be like to what it is now, and we bring up globalization, there's always a worry I have, which is, let me paraphrase, I read this um, short story by Jorge Luis Borges, Argentinian writer, he wrote in the essay, an introduction in front of the, the stories, that a lot of people are complaining that the Argentine spirit or the Argentine way of being has disappeared. And he told people to get over it. He said, the way the Argentines accept external influence, address external influences, the way they introduce it into their country and make it a fabric of who they are, that is what it means to be Argentinian. Right. Right. So there's a, a certain... Some people might accuse me of saying, oh, globalization is really flattened experience and I can't really tell one place from another and where is the authenticity, you know, I say. Somebody might say, don't be a romantic about that, you know, be more realistic about that. The way a culture accepts influences is as much an expression of what that culture is. Um, and there is no separate kernel. I don't know that I believe that, but there is something around that where I don't want to to go too much to an extreme and romanticize some protected notion of what it means to be Mexican or, or American and so on. I don't know if you, if you feel that tension in you. Is there such a thing as a, a unique Brazilian essence or collective mood that needs to be conserved? Or should you be more liberal and just see, go with the flow? I think it's a filter, okay? Like globalization, like anything that is incorporated or not incorporated into a culture. There are trends that travel globally more than ever. But I think that a culture is always gonna try to, it, there is a survival thing in a core 
of its fabric that is going to remain the same. And that's going to be that filter that's going to be applied to any changes that might, you know, take place. So I think in a way the author is correct. I am a romantic, obviously. So yes, I was kind of disappointed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I, at the same time, I feel like, no, people still are very hospitable. Let's say there's some core characteristics of Brazilians. They are really very religious. You know, they have faith or superstition. They are all about having a good time. Brazilians touch a lot. They laugh a lot. Um, they're very attached to their families. I mean, some of those core things I don't think have changed at all. And I don't think they will, actually, because I feel like there is some sort of, uh, oh, man, it's in your genetic code almost, I feel, to be a certain way and interact with the environment and with the people next to you that way. And, and so things may change somewhat, but I feel at the very basis of it, it's kind of we're still if you if you if you peel off like an onion right if you peel off all these layers the core is the same i feel so i want to linger a little bit longer on this because i think you you touched on on the answer to this next question but is there such a thing as a collective character or a collective mood that brazilians share what i have in mind for instance when people think about seattle there's a certain liberalism there's a certain appreciation for non-showy luxury, there's an appreciation for nature, there's a certain Pacific Northwest or Seattle character that, that seems to have a little bit of truth to it. I heard in another podcast recently that the Viennese tend to have a, a realistic appreciation of death and gloom. Right <laughs> Now, I don't know if that's true, but when I was in Vienna, it, it did strike me that that seemed true in the architecture and, and the lighting and the mood of the place. So does Brazil have a similar set of characteristics that you would feel comfortable identifying. And let me complicate the question a little bit. It seems like Brazil has many different types of historical populations mixed in one spot. So are there collective moods relative to the different historical populations that, are, that live there? In terms of collective mood, I feel like it is very true that Brazilians are very much about living in the present. Okay, so they are very lively you will hardly ever find it hard to approach a Brazilian, I think. They will be all about trying to help you or having a good time, or they might even invite you over to you know, their house. Hey, we're making, we're making some uh, black bean stew, and why don't you come over? Yeah, 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 come meet my family, blah, blah, blah. So uh, there's this spontaneity. I would say that in general, Brazilians are extremely approachable. They are all about hosting and being pleasant, you know, even though uh, some of it might come across superficial, they actually do mean it. Brazilians are very lighthearted that way. They're all about having a good time, and anything's an excuse to have a good time. I think in terms of collective mood, anywhere you go in Brazil, I feel you're going to identify this trait of, oh, they were so, so nice, and they're really hospitable. Over the years, my wife and I have identified that it's we can't quite put our finger into it. Is it like when you establish, when you strike a relationship with a, a, a friends, I guess, right? Unless it has been for a long time, I suppose, it becomes a little superficial. It's, a, you know, because Brazilians are also very distracted. <laughs> so I feel like they shift from one thing to another very frequently. And in that pursuit of having a good time, you know, I have friendships now from people in Brazil from my, my teenage years, right, that I still have. I still have those people close to me. And even if we don't, we are not in touch every day, any time we meet, it's like a party. And it's like we never didn't stay together or in touch. So I think that 
you you can come back and retrieve that, I guess, when you meet these people again. It's mm-hmm. very interesting. It seems superficial, but I feel like it does linger over the years. When you see those people again, it's like, oh, yeah, no problem. Come over. Let's do this and that. So there is this sense of spontaneity that I think permeates the culture in general. Mm-hmm. They're very much like that everywhere you go. And, and you were, of course, born there. Yes. And you were raised there. And you, you met your wife in Brasilia. Is that right? That's and, correct. Right. And now here you are in the United States and you've raised your children here. What is your children's relationships to Brazil? Is Brazil somehow embedded into their way of being and thinking in a, in a foundational way? Or is it more akin to this? that's the place dad is from and I am learning more and more as I grow up about the place dad's from? What, how are your children and Brazil related? We have always taught, spoken uh, both languages at home. So, But of course, when you're talking about a culture and being into that culture, it goes way beyond just speaking a language. Obviously, because I was raised in Brazil, I bring to the family this whole aspect of my culture, right, that otherwise you would not have any contact with. Um, and it, it, it is embedded in our day-to-day lives as well, okay? It's in the way we try to relate to people. It's in the way we cook. It's in the way we make those decisions collectively. I think that my kids are still kind of struggling a little bit with their own identity. Of course, they are teenagers, so that's a given. But I feel I noticed my my daughter specifically. She has said to me that one of the main reasons she wanted to go on the trip with us and spend three months in Brazil was because she had never thought of herself as Latina or Brazilian necessarily other than having a passport, a Brazilian passport. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. I think she really understands that for her to be able to say, I am at least half Brazilian, that she needs to have a deeper understanding of the culture and how the fabric actually operates, which I feel is fascinating. So I feel like we have done our job there of at least inciting the curiosity in her. Our passage in Brazil during our trip was uh, bombastic. (laughs) We had some massive family issues that we had to uh, tend to. And I said to Bella after the end of our three months, I said, see... This is kind of what it looks like and what it feels like to be Brazilian. This kind of interaction, this kind of uh, intensity. It's like you're watching a soap opera, okay? But that's exactly how they operate. People shout, they scream. It doesn't mean necessarily they hate each other or whatever, but they are very expressive. And they don't hold it back, man, let me tell you. So everything is out in the open. You know, and it's kind of crazy. And for somebody to look from the outside might think it's just, oh my gosh, let's call the cops. This is kind of crazy. Mm. So uh, Bella has had some cultural shock. Well, I have cultural shock every time I go because the things operate here very differently, right? But in terms of identity, I think they're still trying to figure out, oh, what portion of me really is Brazilian? What are some of the things that I do that are really Brazilian, do I really? But it's not just, oh, that's dad's country. I think there is a deeper uh, relationship there. Mm-hmm. My son is very much into soccer. It's not something that I forced. I was never a so- good soccer player. I mean, I'm horrible. But, you know, we always had some sort of appreciation of the sport, you know, and it's the national sport. Brazilians are very serious about soccer. And we do have some experience. I feel like he kind of absorbed some of that too, you know, some of that um, appreciation. But I think they haven't quite found that common ground. They're never going to be 100% one thing or another, obviously, but I I don't think they have found it yet. But it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of, uh, well, a significant number of families that are are raising children would want to really infuse 
the their mother culture into the day to day in a, in a very aggressive even way <laughs> aggressive as in reminding them every day and making sure that the culture is more than 50% or even 100% of who they are it sounds like your approach was a bit more laissez faire about it that you know your children will will see what the brazilian culture is all about but the level in which they assimilate it is up to them up to their osmosis quotient if yes. you will it wasn't something that you were consciously making sure that they had that i've been heavily criticized mm. um, <laughs> for that approach but i feel like See, I always knew growing up that I was not going to have my extensive life in Brazil. Like I was going to probably graduate and then move out because there were lots of things that I was bothered by, you know, this whole patriotism. There is a sense of nationalism in Brazil. It's different than here, okay? It's not like patriotism itself, but there is a certain sense of I am Brazilian and I belong here. You know, it's it's like when you get bothered when people criticize your country and you're not from that country and you're like how dare you you have no idea what the hell you're talking about it's a similar thing right they know that there's a lot of crap going down and they are in, have problems but at the same time there's a sense of pride of we love our country and we do this here i think i always was able to look at things taking a step back looking from the outside and i think that helped me infuse that into the kids and kind of let them sort of drive that pace. I noticed a lot of, this is a very important thing and that makes me think a little bit different than most of the Brazilians I know and they are, are friends with, that a lot of the Brazilians don't leave their culture. You know, if you go spend, go to a party at someone's house, okay? The first thing you notice is when you walk in is they are playing some bossa nova or samba or some contemporary or old music from Brazil that I'm just like, mother of God. Yes, so you notice immediately that you are, I mean, meaning they can't let go, right? There's some habits and some things and that they just don't let go. It's hard. I feel like sometimes it might get in the way of you experiencing, hmm. oh, we are here now in the US and here's some of the things that we could be doing, you know, instead of, you know, the foot is always there and the foot is always in Brazil and they, they never quite let go. When I left, I was like, I can go back to it anytime I want, but I am here now. When in Rome, do as the Romans do, I kind of feel like a little bit like that in terms of, I really want to understand what it means to be American. I really want to understand what it means to be in Seattle and experience the culture in a way that I don't want the other stuff to get in the way. You know what I'm saying? It's, it sounds a little abrupt, but... No, no what, what I'm feeling self-conscious about is, you know, this is a program about getting a, a sense of the texture of a place and how the people are. And here I am trying to psychoanalyze you and maybe I should chill. And, <laughs> and maybe one way to do that is actually do a transition and talk about Argentina, which is a neighboring country. I actually looked. I, I wanted to make sure if the borders actually touch because I'm a geography freak and I... I thought they did, but I had they to double do. check because Paraguay and Uruguay sort of yes. are sm snuck in there, but there is enough of a border between Argentina and Brazil. And you recently in your round the world trip went to Argentina, and I want to talk about those locations that you visited. But before we talk about the round the, the world trip, I'm curious, given that they're neighbors, had you visited Argentina before that round the world trip? Yes. <laughs> so... Can you tell us a little bit about the relationship between Brazilians and Argentinians, not from a political point of view, but from a more personal or, or mm. colorful perspective? What What is that neighborhood like? Colorful is the word, I think, mm -hmm. that relationship. <laughs> it's kind of a love-hate relationship, I think. Um, Argentina being the second largest country, you know, in, in South America, uh, and knowing that Brazil is the only country in South America that speaks Portuguese. 
There are some rivalries that are very interesting. I think both both nations or people are passionate, you know, about what they do. It's part of being Latin American. There's no difference, like in terms of like how intense they are. I don't think, but I I would say that Argentina felt to me more like Europe. It has a, a slightly more Europeanized feel. Like the cities, at least Buenos Aires, for instance, I felt was spectacularly, you know, contemporary and old meets new and had, I really felt it had this intense, beautiful history. And they're very traditional. Like they're really attached to their soccer and their music. Well, you could say the same thing about Brazil, I guess. But I guess because being from Brazil, it's hard for me to sort of like appreciate things from Brazil. Like you go to Rio and it's very unique. Mm-hmm. You can go to Buenos Aires, it's also very unique. The Portenos are, uh, I guess, more peculiar. I think they are, in a sense, a little bit more traditional, and I think they are a little bit more um, nationalist. And the word porteños refers to all of Argentinians or a specific region? Or? I think porteños is the people who are in Buenos Aires, sorry. Okay. They're the, mm-hmm. more, the, more, the mm-hmm. big city. You know? mm-hmm. I went there the first time in 1978, I believe. No, the World Cup. Yeah, it was, right? Uh, we took a... It was after, though. We took a bus tour. <laughs> um, we met in the south of Brazil. We flew to the south of Brazil to a city called Curitiba, which is also a really cool city to visit. And so my experience then being a child with my parents in a world of adults, I suppose, going out in Buenos Aires and watching. I remember the first time I watched a tango, for instance. I'm never going to forget it. And I knew then that I wanted to go back as a grown-up to really experience everything. But I remember loving it. I remember how much I fell in love with Buenos Aires, even as a seven, eight-year-old kid, and how I was in love with the food, the empanadas, and the music. I thought tango was the most like beautiful, vibrant, amazing thing. So, And I did. took a long time, but hey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned about the, the Europeani- Europeanized version of Buenos Aires. And a lot of people mention that, you know, it's very Parisian looking and, and the wide avenues, etc. I have never personally been there. I wish to be there, but this is what I hear. But what I'm curious about, and and this stems from my experience in Mexico, Mexico has Spanish influence, obviously. Right? right. The conquistadores came in the imperialism of Spain and Mexico. Now, when we're talking about Europeanization of Argentina, do Argentinians nod and say, yeah, we have a certain European feel and culture? Is there awareness of it? And is it a, a glad awareness of it? Or is there some resistance? Is there some sense of, by saying that about us, you are denying our identity as Argentinians? Wow, that's a really great question because I didn't notice anything about that. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I think they embrace the whole Paris of South America thing. Mm-hmm. It's good for business. Yeah. <laughs> but um, when I say Europeans, of course, Brazil was also colonized by Europeans. Mm-hmm. Okay, we, yeah. Mainly Portuguese and Spanish. But we also had Dutch. And that kind of colonization made huge differences in the regions. But I always say, this sounds going to sound super horrible, but we, we joke in my house <laughs> when we make comparisons between Argentina or the rest of South America and, and, and Brazil. We say, well... Brazil was colonized by the Portuguese, and the rest of South America mainly, I think, was uh, by the Spanish. So there is a difference there. Mm -hmm. Although they were all imperialists and whatever, 
I feel like Portugal wanted to go to Brazil to just exploit, 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 exploit. They didn't want to go there and settle. You know what I'm trying to say? It was mm -hmm. a different, I guess, set of circumstances. Mm. So I think it shaped the way people, the culture, you know, people kind of turned out to be like. Yeah, let's just leave it at that <laughs> for now. <laughs> yeah, this will be great. Maybe I'll optimize the the page that has this podcast in order to attract a lot of Argentinian traffic and see what the comments bring. I think that might be fun. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're going to attack me probably. <laughs> but I love that. I love Argentina. I really do. Well, well, let's go there. In your recent round the world trip, what are some of those locations about your Argentinian trip that really struck you as, as memorable, that really... Um, become the fabric of who you are now and, and it's part of your memories. Tell us a little bit about your recent trip there and, and what are some of those experiences? Okay, so we spent about a month in Argentina. It was fantastic. Buenos Aires, of course, fell in love with the place. I, I had been there, like I said, as a child. So it was different to experience it as a, as a grown-up and with a family. But still had all the charm and the beauty. I mean, I can't begin to tell you. It is definitely when they say the Paris of South America. That's definitely a really really accurate comparison. We knew there were some experiences we wanted to have. We knew we wanted to go to Buenos Aires. We knew we wanted to have uh, an experience at, at Estancia. We thought about going to a ranch and, you know, meeting the gauchos and having some sort of like a, a Pampas-specific experience. Uh, we also wanted to go to Mendoza, the wine region that is super famous for the Malbecs. I'm a big wine lover, so... And there was another area that we wanted to experience because it's kind of embarrassing to say that we never went out in nature so much here in the Pacific Northwest, which is ridiculous because mm -hmm. it's one of the most gorgeous places in the world. It really is. Mm -hmm. And so I had never gone kayaking, you know, here in the Pacific Northwest. So in Argentina, we went to Peninsula Valdez, which is a, a UNESCO heritage site. We ha I had my first kayaking experience there with sea lions. Mm. That experience specifically, aside from the obvious stuff, you know, like the good wine and the tango and the estancia, I think that experience was something that definitely changed something in me as a human being. Because I was never a nature guy, never big on camping, you know, never big on animals in the wild, whatever. Mm -hmm. Always felt kind of, you know, repulsed by, you know, bugs and grass and trees or whatever in humidity but i was fascinated utterly fascinated at the peninsula of Valdez, at the sheer uniqueness of the landscape and of the kinds of experiences you can have there it, it, it it's like your life sort of goes in slow-mo you have no option but mm -hmm. to actually slow down and embrace and observe observe so for somebody wanting to have a big rupture of a, a routine or a, you know, um, an extended period of stress. This is, that, that's a region I feel people should go and stay there for a while. It made me want to hike. It made me want to go out in the wild. It made me less afraid, I guess, mm -hmm. of what might happen. You know, I have a pathological fear of sharks, for instance, right? And here we are kayaking in a region where orcas come to eat the sea lions. And I wasn't afraid. It was really bizarre. I felt almost like removed from my own body. Hmm. Argentina has lots to offer, guys. And so I feel like we just touched the little tip of the iceberg by having these like four or five different types of experiences in there. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's interesting. What we'll do, I, I think if I remember correctly in your site, learnlivetravel.com, you have a video episode specifically about this place. 
you know, you talked about it having unique characteristics and, and being a slow experience. Can you go a little deeper and explain what those are? Is it, is it as simple as when you go to a nature destination, let's say in the United States, there's a certain infrastructure in place that allows you very easily to go in, experience the highlights and come out very easily with your rental car. Whereas in, what was the name of this place again? Peninsula Valdez. Peninsula Valdez. There is a good infrastructure, but it's not designed for that kind of tourism. What, what made it turn you into a nature boy? Well, so here's the deal. I, the town that we stayed in Peninsula, there's only one little town in Peninsula, okay? And it's called Puerto Piramides, population 45. <laughs> well, that, that's so something to do with it, yeah. It is tiny, you guys. It's like two streets, a gas station, an ATM. One ATM that sometimes works. So um, no cell phone, forget about reception. Um, so you are truly detached from, you know, society, I guess. And you know, there is somewhat of a, I guess there's a clinic there if something happens to you. You you really have to let go or you, you, you would be paralyzed. Uh, there is a little... Um, a little place we stayed called La Posta. It was a little, you can't even call a bed and breakfast. You could rent a room there that had five beds essentially in the bathroom where the shower kind of worked. Mm. So you have to sort of be more willing to give up some of these luxury things, you know. And yeah, I guess you just learn how to sort of let go. You really don't have an option if you go to a place like this. Mm -hmm. So... We, we had a rental car, but it was a small car, you know. We had to drive on a dirt road for, you know, an hour and a half to cross the Peninsula of Valdez and be able to experience some of the things we saw there, like the penguins. They have penguins there, for instance, right? The day we went on our kayaking trip, we actually left our car behind, and we went on this uh, uh, Jeep with the guide, a guy that lives there, and his name is Pablo. <laughs> and he told he told us all about his life and how, you know. So anyway, just having that chance to, because you are so disconnected electronically and whatever, bond with people, and you have no other option but to actually interact and be there in the moment living that. And I felt like the fact that he was so confident, he's explained to us how to get into the kayaks. This whole process, I feel, made me realize that you can't live your life in fear. Like I said, I have a fear of sharks. It wouldn't be far-fetched for me to be afraid that an orca would come maybe and not eat me, but not knock me out of the boat. I mean, you know, accidentally. I don't know. No, there I mean, are plenty of videos like that on YouTube. Yeah, I'll I don't, show you later. I don't have, I don't want to diss the orcas. I know they're intelligent beings and they have social structure and all that, but things happen, right? I mean, you know, I'm not super confident in the, in the open water. We had to operate the kayak and I had to film and I had to, you know, the sea lions were diving underneath us and yeah i had to sort of let go of that fear and embrace it are there any preconceptions you had about argentina whether they developed when you were growing up in brazil and then became part of the brazil versus argentina rivalry that were challenged or altered during this recent visit anything shift in you well yeah because one of the things that they said uh, argentinians are very arrogant you know and i feel like Brazilians wants to, want to be the only passionate ones, I guess, in South America. <laughs> Brazil has beautiful things to do and beautiful things to see, but Argentina has the Andes. Sorry, it's mm. kind of breathtaking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then when we went into the Mendoza region and the wineries are all butted against the Andes mountains, you know, I have to say, 
there were things in there that were, I mean, there, there are reasons why these people are so passionate about their countries, you know, and they are pretty nationalistic, you know, if you remember the whole uh, Peron era with Evita Peron and how, you know, it was kind of a populist government and stuff, but they still love this woman. They still love Evita Peron. I mean, there's, they are so intense and passionate about the things they like. So I wouldn't say ever that they are arrogant. I think they're just really aware of their, this is what we are and how we are and that's it. Come mm -hmm. visit or bust. Right. <laughs> Steadfast. So thank you so much for, for not just today's talk, but last week's talk where we talked about the 13 countries in 11 months in your round the world trip. Um, can you tell us again where all that wonderful video and written content you and your family have created can be found and, and where people can continue to follow because you're releasing content not just about South America, but also Africa and Europe coming up, I assume? That's correct. I'm still on season one. I'm finishing South America right now. There are about 18 episodes, uh, web episodes. They are not very long. They're short. Um, I think the longest episode is 10 minutes, but usually they're about six, seven minutes. So it's a quick watch. The name of the site is learnlivetravel.com, and you're going to find all these web episodes and a bunch of imagery and uh, information about how we did it. Great. Thank you so much for, for the, the double episode presence. I uh, really appreciate sharing not only your your trip but going into psychotherapy and sharing some of your personal <laughs> interpretations of the world around you hopefully that wasn't too painful no i hope it was useful and i hope people are considering now going places that maybe they have not thought about going because it's it's worth it thank you thank you very much thank you Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave comments about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io, where our podcasts, videos, and written content live. And of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest greatest episode on your favorite app and device. We are now on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Take your pick or fire up your favorite podcatcher. Until the next time, this must be the place. <laughs>